if this is your first time hearing the gospel today, welcome. We are excited for you to be here. Uh, listen closely. Uh, this verse is the Christian message. Uh, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, uh, but you have found Christian faith souring in your mind and heart. Well, look again at John 3.16. This is the Christian message. Uh, this is what Christians believe. And if you are now a Christian, uh, grateful without much doubt, but weary of life, take heart, because this is the Christian message. This is what we confess to be true. And so my prayer for this morning is that we would hear God's heart afresh this morning in John 3.16, and we would leave believing and rejoicing in Eastertide. Lucy is our scripture reader for today. She will be reading John 3.16, to 21. Our scripture reading for today is from John 3.16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. This is the judgment. The light has come into the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather and people love the darkness rather than the light because their their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and and, and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the Apostle John at the end of his life, writing the Gospel of John, adding this book to the other three Gospels, feeling like there were more things to be said about Jesus, more stories to hear, and this is one of those extra stories that he added, uh, his meeting with Nicodemus, and this word in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So we're thankful to John, we're thankful to you, we're thankful to the Holy Spirit, but we need the Holy Spirit today and right now that our eyes would be open, that we would be people who believe in Christ, um, who do not disbelieve in him. And so would you draw near to us this morning? Um, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Man, how do you introduce a text like this? Uh, one so famous, a sentence so very important. How does one respond to good news like this? Uh, we're used to bad news. Uh, if something interrupts our life, it's usually not a good thing, right? Uh, good stuff that happens is most often the product of hard work. Uh, we're grateful, but we're also thinking, you know what, I did that. I accomplished this. Um, the Ainsworths just finished the high school application process, and we are super grateful for how it ended up. Um, it was very good news. We're glad for it, but the result wasn't out of nowhere. We invested a ton of time, too much time, in that whole process, and there's a lot of thought and sweat over the past year, not to mention the last 14 years of parenting, right? Um, it was great news. It was good news. We were grateful, but we were also ready for it. 
When is the last time you received unexpected good news, surprising news? I read a lot of news. Uh, Maybe you do too. And so zooming out from your life, when have you last read about an unexpected good news story? Uh, A news event that was purely good. Uh, After years of drought, I thought the rain was good news, right? Didn't you? California is no longer in a serious drought. That's a good thing. That's amazing. But then this article comes out from The Guardian. Double-edged sword. Why the badly needed rains in California could fuel catastrophic fires. Like, what are you talking about? Right? We have been praying for rains because of the fires, and now they're telling me that the rain will cause fires. Right? At least let me live in ignorance for just a short bit, Guardian. Um, admittedly, there are a few per- purely good news articles, but they really never compare to the bad news articles. They're not pound for pound, right? And so if you were skimming the front page this week, you've got the debt crisis, war in Sudan, criminal indictments, abortion, Draymond Green. There's like all kinds of bad news things. Um, but then you do have occasionally a good news article like this one. Kyle, Texas, hopes to set a Guinness World Record for largest same-name gathering. I actually like sent, I have a friend in Houston, uh, we used to live in Houston, his name Kyle, and I sent him this article and told him he has to go uh, to Kyle, Texas, and be one of thousands of Kyles. But that's the good news article for the week. You get one article, this is it, now back to bad news. Um, I'm being facetious, of course, but the majority of news is bad news, right? Uh, So many of us find ourselves emotionally unprepared when we come across unexpected, purely undeserved, staggeringly good news like the gospel in John 3.16. This is not good news like Kyle, Texas. This is not a high school admissions or tax refund or droughts ending. It's not even a cure for cancer or a peace treaty. This is unprecedented, staggeringly good news. Every phrase in John 3.16 should still surprise us, even if you are familiar with this verse. I want to talk about six surprises in John 3.16 and ask you to be again surprised or surprised for the first time. First, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Think about that. Given the bad news world I just described, God's continued love for the world should be surprising to us. That's why John repeats himself immediately in John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I know it's shocking, says John, so let me say it again. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what we would expect given the state of our world, but he sent Jesus to save it. I honestly want us all to go home (coughs) and read the newspaper um, or the news. No one gets newspapers anymore, but read the newspaper And between each article, repeat to yourself, for God so loved the world. That this is the response to our world. How does it make any sense? Is there really enough good in the world to outweigh all the bad? Is the world worth loving? Sure, we love it because we sort of have to, right? It's all we've got, and so we got to make do. But if you're God, you don't have to love it. That's not a given God doesn't have to love the world. As revealed in Scripture, God has himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing in perfect union. He is content. He needs nothing. He's God. And so why love a broken world like ours? In fact, would it not be more reasonable for a perfectly holy God to disdain the world, to hate it and position himself again, to send 
his only begotten son to condemn it. That would make sense. Every year in January, we work through the story of God as a church. We dialogue through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it's always fascinating on week two to hear people respond to the flood uh, because it changes every year. Uh, The story begins, uh, the flood is a terrible story. Um, It begins with Genesis 6 explaining why God flooded the earth. In verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The flood is a terrifying story. It's a terrible story, but I'll never forget the year that we discussed this story just a few days after the January 6th riots. And I remember one person in particular reflecting that year, 2021, and saying, you know, last year I had a hard time with this story, but this year it makes more sense to me, right? He was frustrated. He had sympathy to God. I get it. If I were God, I'd flood it too. Because after all, we are the cause of all the bad news. I've often kind of wondered about the fall. Did it only affect Earth? Like, is there's no fallenness in space, right? It's only Earth where humans are, where fallenness is experienced. Because we're the cause of it. That's the conclusion, not just of the Bible. It's the conclusion of so many environmentalists. Like, you can uh, read lots of articles, lots of op-eds. Um, where the world would be better off without human beings. And so they encourage us to stop making more humans. They want people to stop having children. Uh, God doesn't disagree. We are the cause, but he's determined to find another way. And so continuing to have children is a statement of faith in God. That's why we'll have a baby dedication service at the end of this, at the end of today, um, because we believe. Notice how the story of the flood concludes with mankind in the same place as before the flood. And yet God chooses to save it. Genesis 8, 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the burnt offering, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, although the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Throughout the biblical story, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we witness over and over how God's love for the world His love for humanity consistently overrides his anger for sin. Uh, We see this dynamic after the golden calf incident, right? Immediately following Israel's idolatrous creation and worship of the golden calf, they've been rescued from Egypt by God. They've been delivered from slavery. And then after just a short test, a short absence of Moses of 40 days, they decide to abandon Yahweh and create an idol. In Exodus 32 The Lord is angry. The Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. But then later, using the same stiff-necked phrase, Moses calls out to God's mercy. And Moses quickly, this Exodus 34, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. See how being stiff-necked, being stubborn, 
is both the reason for God's judgment and the reason for his mercy. It's the same reason that calls out God's wrath and his love. In the book of Hosea, the prophet records again this back and forth struggle in the heart of God as he talks about his deep love for Israel. Hosea 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And so as punishment for their sin, God turns them over to their enemies. In verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, not me, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. But then, in the very next verse, God's impulse towards mercy fights back. Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, the two towns destroyed at Sodom and Gomorrah? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And so again and again throughout the Old Testament, God's love overcomes his wrath. What good news is this? What surprising news that God loves the world. Not only is he not angry with the world, He's not ambivalent. He's not indifferent to it. He loves the world. And so the next time you're grieved, as God often is with the state of the world, remember and marvel at John 3.16. When you are grieved at the state of you, when you are frustrated with yourself, remember and marvel at John 3.16, that God loves this world and God loves you. Be surprised, especially when you remember the next phrase, right? Second, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How much did God love the world? Enough to give his only begotten son. The ESV removes begotten, the translation, and many modern translations will remove it. But that is not correct. It makes John 3.16 easier to understand um, more sort of normal English. Uh, we don't talk about begotten. Uh, we're not <laughs> it's not a begotten service at the end of the, uh, uh, the child dedication service, right? Um, but that difficulty um, that the modern translations hide, it, it's too important to miss, and so we need to hold on to it. John could have easily used the word only. Um, he uses it a bunch of times elsewhere in the gospel. But when he speaks about Jesus' identity, he consistently uses this unique phrase, only begotten. And so what does this mean? Christians confess in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And C.S. Lewis explains the difference between begotten and made. He says in Mere Christianity, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. And so a man begets human babies, 
a beaver begets beavers, a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you mate, you make something of a different kind from yourself. So a bird makes a nest, a beaver builds a dam, a man makes a wireless set. This is uh, from 1940-something, right? Um, there is a lot of metaphysical mystery in this idea of Jesus being the only begotten Son of God. But for our purposes this morning, only begotten captures the price of the gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so this means that Jesus was not an adopted Son, a human being made by God and then chosen for a special task, like the first Adam or Noah or Abraham or David. He was not an angel or some other powerful but created being, so like a Superman who's hiding uh, like and pretending to be Clark Kent. Both would be precious gifts from God, given in love, one in a billion, but it would have been nothing to God, right? He created the universe with the word, and so it would have been a small thing for him to send a savior like that. That's not the measure of God's love for the world. That is not Jesus, because Jesus was begotten, not made. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave God to us. Before Christ, we didn't even know God was Trinity. That is a truth that can only be revealed. It's not discovered with reason. So that's a surprise already uh, with the Gospel of John. But what's so much more of a surprise is that God, being Trinity, would give one of its members would send one of its members to save humanity. Gift. It's a gift that can't be taken back. God gave the son. There's a permanence to this gift. When the eternal begotten word was made flesh, he never went back. He didn't go back to being just God. He remains human forever. It's not a temporary assignment. And so when God gives his son to the world, He would always, in a sense, belong to man. He would belong to us. The Son is ours. God is forever sharing God with us. All love is costly, but none as costly as this. And so other religions will celebrate the gods for giving fire or wine or healing or kings or victory. And the God of Israel gets all of those things too. But Romans 5 says more. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so there again, the shock gets even bigger because not only does God love the world, not only does he love him such that he gave his only begotten son, but he gave him knowing that he would die. God gave his only son as a sacrifice. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was the only way to end this back and forth battle between God's love and his wrath. God brought them together at the cross. In the gospel, in the cross, God's love and wrath work together for our good. In giving his son, God's love would swallow God's wrath and he would drink it to the dregs. This is the third surprise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Jesus was given, Jesus died, so that we might not die. Death is ultimately the reason for all the bad news that we experience. It is the reality of death which introduces fear, scarcity, jealousy, hate. And death is the result of sin. 
when we turned away from God, the giver and sustainer of life. It is the result of God's anger. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what makes this particularly good news is the particularly bad news that perishing in the Bible is an eternal reality. Perishing is not mere physical death any more than eternal life is not mere existence. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so something more than bodily death is going on here. This is eternal death. Uh, Historically, the Christian church has taught that this death happens forever in an ongoing way. It's experienced forever in hell. Hell is the place of judgment that was created not for mankind, but for Satan and his rebellious angels. Hell is hard to stomach, for sure. But the main reason that Orthodox Christianity still believes in an eternal hell is because of how often Jesus talks about it. It's an explicit teaching of Christ. And it's hard to deny a doctrine mentioned so frequently by Christ himself. Universalism is not really an option, um, even if just for the fact that hell will always exist for Satan. So we don't, uh, it would be quite scandalous uh, to say that Satan would be redeemed. And so if he can never be redeemed, and so hell is there for him. Uh, The book of Revelation is in part a story of people that just keep siding with Satan over and over again. And it's just really shocking to read over the course of the story. No matter how much God warns them, no matter how many signs he sends, they still opt opt to go with him. A weak case, I think, can be made for uh, annihilationism um, and eternal death being the permanent annihilation of unbelievers. I don't I don't think it's true, at, but I think it is less wrong. Um, and I'm generally happy to talk with anyone about the doctrine of hell and what it means and what we're to do with it. But even if one believes that perishing is a ceasing to exist. If that's what it is, that is still awful news. It really is. That someone would cease to be is terrible. Our very selves being extinguished, lost forever. There's a reason that nearly every culture, I can't think of a culture, a pre-modern, pre-secular culture, that hasn't believed in some kind of afterlife something in some way because personal beings are meant to live forever right their value is meant to extend forever we don't lose personal beings and so in either case in any case john 316 remains fantastic news that we might not perish That God, who justly punishes sinners, would simultaneously love a sinful world and send his only begotten son to save us from perishing. To deliver us from our biggest problem, a problem of our own making, death. And to whom is this salvation offered? It's offered to whoever believes. That's the fourth and fifth surprise For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him. God's offer of salvation, which came at such a tremendously high price from God, is available to anyone. Jesus is not a regional God, which is typical of 
uh, religious expression until Christianity. Christianity favors no nation or race or people group. After 2,000 years, we have kind of grown accustomed to the idea that God loves the whole world, but that is new to Jesus, that God loves all people everywhere, that he loves them in their own tongue, in their own cultures. Um, Even, you know, most people today embrace universal human rights, but the belief in human rights is a uniquely Christian idea. It didn't show up in the world anywhere until Jesus came and until the New Testament was written. Uh, Human equality is not a product of the Enlightenment. It's a product of Christianity. Um, It's found here in John 3.16 when God invites whoever to believe. All people are created in God's image. All have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. And the gospel says in Romans 5.18 that as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So you don't have to be a Pharisee. You don't have to be a Jew. You definitely don't have to be an American, which is something that sadly you have to, when sharing Christ with people from the East or from Japan or China, a lot of times you have to, you have to work quite hard at explaining that Christianity is not just an American thing, which is so sad. God's invitation extends to whoever. God commands his church to take his offer of salvation to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what is the offer? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. My mailman is a Christian. Jason is his name. And he always asks me when I'm working on for my sermons. I'm usually home on Fridays doing stuff, and he's always wanting to talk to me. Um, And this week we were talking about John 3.16, And he shared with me a reflection. Uh, He pointed out, what can we really offer God? We can't offer him anything. He has everything. He needs nothing. Uh, What can we give him? The only thing we can give him, Jason said, is trust. That's what we offer, belief, faith. He has everything. He needs nothing. The only thing we can bring to him is trust. And that's what John 3.16 invites us to do, to come empty-handed but just believing We're to believe in Jesus. Literally, the Greek says, believe into Jesus. Murray Harris writes, to believe in Jesus is to have faith that is directed towards him, faith that is focused on him. It involves the total commitment of one's whole self to the person of Christ as Messiah and Lord forever. Elsewhere, John describes this faith as coming to Jesus, as receiving Jesus, as drinking the spiritual water Jesus offers, as following Jesus, as loving Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, we are entrusting ourselves to him forever, relying on him for our acceptance by God and devoting ourselves to serving him. This must have been so surprising to Nicodemus, who spent his whole life doing, right? Who felt like salvation was not only reserved for the Jews, but the very best Jews. When what God asks is simply believing, trusting, following Christ, and he asks it of anyone, Someone else made the observation when Nicodemus came at night. And one of the criticisms of the Pharisees against Jesus is that he hung out with sinners, right? And so he hung out with sinners and lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes, all these people who are ritually unclean. And so there's actually no way for the Pharisees to get to Jesus. 
And so could that have been why he came at night? Because this is the only way he could stay ritually pure and have a conversation with Jesus because he couldn't get through the crowds without touching people that he thought he shouldn't touch. Christ is the kindest, most wonderful human being, and all God asks us to do is to believe in him. Now, being a Christian does come with costs, but the gains are amazing, and that's the last surprise, eternal life. What is Jesus offering? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What will God's love for the world affect? What is the salvation God is offering to us? What does belief into Jesus get us? It gets us eternal life now and forevermore. And so John's really clear throughout. I'm sure it'll come up as we work through the book that eternal life begins now. But it goes on forever. Maggie and I were challenged by another pastor recently to emphasize the gains of ministry more than the cost, which was just a really convicting word to us. Um, He was speaking specifically about ministry of justice and um, mercy, ministry to the poor, racial reconciliation, care for the marginalized. And and when we have conversations about what obedience costs us, we emphasize the cost. I can emphasize the cost. What is it costing me? But he just challenged me to emphasize the gains. Like, what is the benefit of following Jesus? There's so much gain now. My life is better with Christ than without him. But more than that, there is an eternal gain ahead. Eternal life is what John 3.16 offers. And that doesn't mean simply existing forever. I just turned 40 and was talking to my dad, and he said, well, maybe you're just a third of the way done. And my response was, no, thank you. (laughs) Right? Like, I don't want to live to be 120. Not if life is as it is right now. Right? With death and sickness, 80, 90 years is plenty. But if death weren't a thing, if sin were no more, if life was abundant and joyous and peaceful with no bad news, only good news, sure I'd live till 120. I'd live forever in that circumstance. In Christianity, eternal life is not eternally existing as is. It's life like God has life. It's being invited into triune life, life eternally united to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the gospel, we are offered nothing less than the supernatural divine life that God and Christ have by nature graciously given to us by union with him because of Jesus' union with us. And so it's still embodied, will still be enfleshed forever. Uh, It's still localized. It's not pantheism or panentheism. Right, we'll still experience time and space. It's personal, we'll still be ourselves. It's active, there'll be stuff to do and enjoy. It's corporate, we'll be together with others. And it's permanent, it's forever. This is what God always intended for humanity and following Jesus' death and resurrection, it's what he offers again. This is what God is inviting us into, eternal life. Who would refuse such an invitation? Who could refuse such good news? Well, as you know, and as John knows, there are plenty of people. The rejection of the light of Christ is a consistent message in the Gospel of John. It's why John wrote the book, to try and persuade more and more people to believe in Jesus. 
but many do not believe. John 1, verses 9 through 11, we've already read. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John 3, 18, continuing our passage today. Whoever believes in him is not judged. But whoever does not believe is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why would anyone refuse God's love shown in the gift of his only begotten Son? Why would anyone not believe? And John tells us this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What does this mean? The girls and I are reading Watership Down, which is a great children's story. I've never read it. It's about rabbits. Um, And basically, there's a warren of rabbits that have run away from their old home and are establishing a new one in a beautiful place called Watership Down. And I'm only halfway through the book, so maybe the moral of the story is very different than the one I'm saying, but as of now, where I'm at, um, they keep coming across other warrens of rabbits, other, other families of rabbits, but these rabbits aren't wild like they are. They've been corrupted by contact with humans, and some are domesticated as pets, Um, Some are being farmed for their pelts. Uh, Some live in constant fear of being found by men. And the wild rabbits are always trying to convince these corrupted rabbits, these uh, human um, contact rabbits, to join them. Um, They want them to come and, and join this beautiful place called Watership Down. And the corrupted rabbits are just blind to the good news. They don't understand it. Uh, They can't get it. Um, They can't compute what it means to be free. Um, It it doesn't make any sense to them. And they refuse even. And they often fight and war against these free rabbits who are just simply inviting um, people in. And the reality is that for people, us, who are accustomed to living in a bad news world, good news is often really confusing. And it's disheartening and it's Um, dangerous, right? The arrival of a new kingdom, a new king calling for repentance and faith sounds like bad news. We don't know what to do with it. And not only that, we've figured out, we've coped how to leverage our bad news world to our benefit. We've taught ourselves to love the darkness rather than the light. Some of us have made it work, and, and those people are the people in the Gospels that are most resistant to Jesus, right? Like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, like they actually are leveraging the corruption of the world for their own gain. But the weak and poor, the victims of the corruption, are quickly responsive to Jesus' good news. They're ripe to hear it. And in Watership Down, you find a few people who come and leave the warrens and join. The gospel of Jesus is meant to shock us into faith. And it doesn't do it through fear, because that's just more darkness. The gospel of Jesus is meant to shock us into faith with light, with the light of Christ, his character, his beauty, his message, grace. Is there anything more glorious than John 3.16? Is there anything more good 
than the eternal God loving this broken world so much that he sent his only son to die, taking its brokenness on himself that we might not die, that we might not perish, but have eternal life with him forever. There is no way to conceive of a better story than that. And there's a lot of other things in the Bible in Christian theology and ethics and practice, and we should embrace it all, um, all of it. Whatever God says is true, we should believe. But if John 3.16 is true, I'll take all the rest with it, right? One of my favorite verses for life today is Romans 3.4, in particular the King James Version is the one that's like stuck in my head. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Even against myself, like I will always go with the word of God. Because of John 3.16, I will stand with Jesus even against myself. John 3 later says, He who comes from above, Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And so he's saying, who will we listen to? The one from heaven or those from the earth? Jesus is from above. He is the only begotten Son of God the Father. And so verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so will we allow ourselves to receive the good news of John 3.16? Will we reaffirm our delight in it? Will you allow yourself to be surprised by the love of God for the world? Will you believe in Jesus, into Jesus? Will you set your seal on this fact that God is true? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. In a world that is perishing, in a world of bad news, do not close your eyes and your heart to the good news of John 3.16. Let the goodness of Jesus surprise you into believing this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the power of Jesus, for the directness of Jesus, that even this good news, it's delivered with a a barb zero sum, right? Believe in Jesus or don't. And that's hard for us to receive. It's hard for us to embrace. It comes at a cost. And so we find ourselves like those other warrens of rabbits, nervous, confused at times. Would you, by your spirit, persuade us by the loveliness of Jesus, by the truth of Christ, by the promise of not perishing but receiving eternal life, and would it convince all of us to make the step out of our old ways into life with you, into the light. Father, thank you for sending your son to save whoever believes. And like Cornelius later, we, many of us believe, but we need help for our unbelief. 
And so would that be the confession of our faith? I believe, help my unbelief. Let us hold fast to you. Make us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. We now have the opportunity to respond in three different ways, through prayer and giving and communion. First, through prayer. If there's anything that you would like prayer about,